When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Holding Pocket. Welcome to the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles, and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holers. How Hi, Kat. Your... Hi, Kat. Hi. How has your week been of researching hard? Well, I've got one which sort of fell into my lap this week slightly, so I didn't have to do as much research as normal, but doesn't mean it'll be any good. What about you, Richard? Well, I've done really very little indeed. I'm holidaying in Scotland, <laughs> in southwest Scotland, and the weather is unusually fine. So I've mostly been sitting in a deck chair with two dachshunds curled up on my lap, thinking beautiful thoughts. Fortunately, my topic this week is one I'm already well acquainted with, so I'm kind of been lucky with that. I'm a little bit worried that effort that we all put in earlier on is sort of going away, if you're not. I mean, I've obviously been studying and revising well, you're and an academic the whole We're, time. Richard's a polymath and you're an intellectual, and I've got a tiny brain that needs to be topped up just before we broadcast, otherwise it would be witheringly empty, I'm afraid. It's nice you to say I'm a polymath, but I'm not a polymath at all. I have a retentive memory for useless information. You were over at Christmas one year and my children tested you out on who wants to be a millionaire, the board game, and you, you knew everything, apart from the sport. I, there was a bit of a gap in the sports department. Well, you know, if I were to be invited to compete on who wants to be a millionaire, then maybe that lifetime of retaining useless knowledge would be to my profit. <laughs> but I have to say, I think it just fills up my paltry mental powers on nonsense and inconsequential stuff, unlike you, Charles. Well, (laughs) (laughs) moving along. (laughs) Right, so we've had our week and we've tried to find as much as we could or remember or whatever, however we did it, to convince our disembodied voice to give us a victory. So, Charles, we are going to get you started here today on the subject of nannies. If you go to Chartwell, the home of Winston Churchill, and you look at the photographs in his study, there's a a small red-framed one with a rather plump lady in it, dressed in black, and her name is Mrs Everest. And Mrs Everest was essentially the substitute for the parents of Winston Churchill when he was growing up. 
His parents were very glamorous and I'm afraid not particularly into parenting. His father, Lord Randolph Churchill, only had one conversation with Churchill that he could remember. And his mother was out gallivanting most of the time. And Winston Churchill actually wrote, I love my mother dearly, but at a distance. My nurse was my confidant. Mrs Everest it was, who looked after me and tended all my wants. It was to her I poured out all my many troubles. And that's so sad and yet incredibly honest. And Nanny Everest joined the Churchill household a month after Churchill was born. And like a lot of nannies at that time, stayed a very long time. Uh, some stayed forever. Mrs Everest stayed for 18 years and then was jettisoned, which I'm afraid was part of the dangers of becoming a nanny is when the children grew up, they were no longer needed. We can go further back into Great Britain's history and look at Elizabeth I. Elizabeth had a nanny called Cat Ashley, who looked after her when she was, uh, well, she lost her mother Anne Boleyn when she was uh, a toddler. And Cat became her, really her, her substitute mother as well. When Cat died in 1565, Elizabeth wrote, We're more bound to them that bringeth us up well than to our parents, for our parents bring us into the world, but our bringers up are a cause to make us live well in it. And it's an extraordinary thing, this substitute mother. It goes all the way back. We have references in the Bible to a nanny's nursemaids. Uh, they're sort of interchangeable, really. And even throughout history, and in the Roman world, quite often the business of breastfeeding, the wet nurse, would have been given to a slave girl or somebody of a lower class. And I'm afraid the tale of the nanny is often one of quite abusive behaviour. The slave girl, the wet nurse, would not be allowed to fall pregnant again. So there was control of her sex life and also her diet. It was quite considered very important to control the diet. And some of the old philosophers in the ancient world believed that the wet nurse should be somebody who looked like the mother or was a very handsome human being, somebody who was going to impart extra goodness through her milk. We don't know really the, where the word nanny comes from. It could come from the Greek root nana, which means aunt, or the Welsh word nain, which means granny, or the Russian niana. But it's really possible that it just comes from one of the early little sounds that a, a baby can make. One of the first sounds they can make when they talk is na, and that might be really where it comes from. We do know that by the times of the British Empire in the 1850s, when it was at its peak, the nanny had a sort of stalwart part in the propagation of imperial rule. Quite often, the nanny would be from the colony where the British were and would be taken into the household in a rather peculiar position. A nanny wasn't grand enough to be part of the family, but she was almost too grand to be part of the household. So often it was a very lonely role. She was really only able to talk to the butler of the household on, on a similar level. Interestingly, to go with the status of a nanny, they were always referred to as Mrs. So-and-so rather than Miss, even though nearly all of them were unmarried. Mrs. was seen to accord them a little bit of extra rank in the household. My own family, weirdly, in the 17th century, has a connection with the Washington family, the famous George Washington's family. When the Washingtons fell on hard times and had to leave their mansion in a Sulgrave, and were really uh, facing impecunious moments, they ended up, the Washington girls ended up as nursemaids at Althorpe, my family's home, and we have them in the, in the records. So they were cousins of my family, sort of second cousins at the time, and um, it was a sort of semi-noble profession in a way to go and attach yourself to a, a large house and work in the nursery. 
So there have been moments where it was seen as a, a slightly humble task being a nanny, but at other times it was seen as a very important part. The influence of the nanny is seen throughout history, and we know from Elie de Rothschild, who was captured as a French officer in World War II, that he could always tell the fellow prisoners, he was in Colditz for a while, he could tell the fellow prisoners who had had a British nanny. They tended to be much less able to look after themselves. They kept their beds tidy, they made no fuss, they lived by the mantra of, you know, don't ask and it won't be given to you, and do ask and it won't be given to you either. And he was appalled, really, <laughs> by the fact that um, he looked at these people losing their will to survive, losing that sort of killer instinct of, you know, jostling for something better, a better bed, better whatever. They were very content with their lot. So I think the good and the bad of a nanny was the fact that they imparted good manners, hygiene, all sorts of things like that, rather Victorian values as we would see them. But they also sapped the spirit of the child they looked after through punishment and, and rather a sort of robust view of life that really gave the child very little voice. Tell me about your own nanny. I'm assuming you had a nanny or nannies. How was it for you? Well, I did. So I was brought up in a sort of North Norfolk world of many nannies. In fact, Nanny Fox, who lived with a family near me, taught me the Lord's Prayer, actually. But we had a succession of nannies. I don't know if it's because we were terrible children or whether they were just on a short service commission. But I had two who used to be very corporal punishment minded, really brutal, actually. You know, the wooden spoon was brought out quite often by one. I mean, really bizarre to remember, but there was one who used to, if I'd done something wrong, bash my head against the wall. Or if I, me and my sister had done something wrong, our heads were banged together to sort of sort us out. My father had no idea about this, and he took the selection of nannies very, very importantly. and He thought it was a key duty. My mother wasn't at home, and he felt very much that he needed a nanny there. And the last nanny I had before being packed off to boarding school, she was called Mary, and he went to Mary's house at the far end of Norfolk, and met her parents to just check that this was somebody who came from a household that he would approve of. So that was rather unusual, I think, from his background to take such interest in who was coming into the house. I mean, you describe that relationship as, as not particularly close or warm, but, I mean, you're a child. Do you not attach to a sort of caregiving, womanly figure in your life? Did you have that sentimental attachment? To that? As we think of Brian said Revisited, where he's constantly trotting along the corridor to see his old nanny kind of hold up on the servant's floor. Well, you're absolutely right. That's such an interesting... Bride's Head Revisited, what's so extraordinary is Evelyn Waugh brings to the character of the nanny, she's one of the most sympathetic people in it because she doesn't change, her room doesn't change, and she doesn't intrude or control like the the tragic hero's mother, Lady Marshmain, who's who's a control freak. Yes, you do get attached. I got incredibly attached to one, Sally, who we still... She still sends me a birthday card, even though I'm 59. Um, and um, she sends one to my each of my seven children every year. She's really a, a lovely, lovely person, and I was very fond of her. My father had the rather eccentric view that you shouldn't have the pain of being parted over a long period. So I'd go to school in the morning and come back in the afternoon and find that the nanny who I'd been sort of living with had disappeared. So mm. not not he wasn't meaning to be cruel. He thought he was being kind, like ripping off a Band-Aid. But it was, it was tough. I always wondered if 
the use of, of nannies especially has also something to do with when we don't live in villages with lots of other people around because I think childcare traditionally is often shared around in extended families and grandparents and grandmothers and things and I suppose if you haven't really got that sort of family situation whether that's got something to do with it is that something you, you came across in researching this at all? I think that's very true as people became richer and more isolated they subcontract the tribal obligation of bringing up a child to a paid individual. In fact, not always paid. This is extraordinary. In colonial times, the British Empire, quite often the family thought it was enough to give this lady food and lodging and she shouldn't expect pay on top, which is really extraordinary. And then the weird things, if you want to look at why Englishmen are so uptight, you know, one of the, the prime prides of an English nanny was to get the baby bowel trained by the age of 10 months. Uh, no wonder they're a little <laughs> stiff, the English, as a result from a certain background. Fascinating. You told us about Charles II forming an erotic attachment to his wet nurse. When did wet nurses stop? Did ever nannies have to provide that service too? I don't know when it stopped, actually. I'm, I'm sure the disembodied voice can have a look there. But it was until quite recently. And also, Kat recently, in, in, last week, was talking about sugar and medicine and gripe water and all that sort of thing. I think nannies were able to do quite abusive things for a quiet life. I mean, great water was essentially mm. alcohol in the water to knock a baby out so it wouldn't scream. Not excellent upbringing, really. And I, I do think that you, you end up with this situation of extreme attachment. I do think Charles II having, losing his virginity to his wet nurse is really an extraordinary, disturbing story, really. Mainly from her end, I think. But I think part of it was the ladies of the house were so busy with their social life, they didn't want to be beholden to feeding their child at 8pm or whatever it was. And they, they let someone else take on that, what they considered drudgery. But what we now know psychologically is an very important bonding process between mother and child. I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice here. The historian I.G. Wicks, who wrote a long paper on the history of infant feeding, says that in the 19th century, artificial feeding became a feasible substitute for wet nursing. Advancement in the feeding bottle and the availability of animals' milk began to slowly but steadily affect the use of wet nurses. And Wicks says that by 1900, the once highly organised wet nursing profession became extinct. I must say, it's so interesting looking at the nanny thing, because, you know, there were... Ones in popular culture that were real, such as uh, Anna Leon Owens, I think is how you pronounce it, who in the 1860s was, uh, she was a governess from India, from Welsh and Eurasian heritage, and she ended up in the Kingdom of Siam, and this is the basis for The King and I, based mm -hmm. on her memoirs. But I'm afraid her memoirs of being a great pacifier and civiliser of influence in the court of Siam is considered mendacious, and she was considered a particularly unpleasant woman. Then you go into the fictional ones. So Mary Poppins, we touched upon this in an early podcast, but she was portrayed in the books as a very vain and tough woman, not Julie Andrews trilling along. And, and then going back to another popular culture one, Baroness von Trapp, I'm afraid there was a sort of uh, Hollywoodization of her relationship with the Admiral. She always remained frightened of Admiral Baron von Trapp, and in her own reminiscences after he was long dead, she said she was petrified of him and she really married him to look after the children and she essentially viewed herself as having married the children. And then we have Mrs Doubtfire, of course, Euphigenia Doubtfire, the great Robin Williams creation. And it turns out that there was a real Mrs Doubtfire known by the author who, who penned the book that the film was uh, based on. 
And she had been married to a man called Sergeant Doubtfire, who died in the First World War, and then married somebody else less happily. And when she was widowed for the second time, she went back to advertising her bric-a-brac shop as Mrs Doubtfire's place to come in and have an adventure, as it were. And so I, I love the fact that there really was a woman called Mrs Doubtfire who inspired that really wonderful movie. What was your favourite fact, Charles? Well, my favourite fact is a really bizarre experiment involving a nanny. James IV of Scotland, who was a great linguist, in fact, he spoke seven languages. In fact, the Spanish ambassador reported back to the King of Spain that James IV of Scotland spoke Spanish better than the King of Spain. He decided to try and find out what the original language of humans were. He's pretty sure it was going to be Hebrew. If we were left to our natural devices, we'd speak the language of the Bible. And so he dispatched a nanny with two newborn children, young children, in fact, to an island in the Firth of Forth called Inchkeith. They were provided with food, water, everything they needed, but no human contact. And she was uh, put in charge of this experiment. Now, we don't know for sure what the results were, but Sir Walter Scott from his examination of the facts, reckoned that they basically made grunts and squeals, so it didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> but the poor nanny had to look after these two unwanted charges on a, on a barren island um, for the amusement of the king. On that note, let's <laughs> move on to something else that provided amusement for kings, which is my topic for this week, menageries. Mm. And I became interested in this a little while ago when I heard about a special tombstone. If you go to... Malmesbury in Wiltshire and you go to Malmesbury Abbey's churchyard you can find a gravestone commemorating a woman called Hannah Twinoy who died in 1703 aged 33 and there's a poem on this tombstone that says in bloom of life she snatched from hence she had not room to make defence for tiger fears took life away and here she lies in a bed of clay until the resurrection day. So Hannah is apparently the first person in England to have been killed by a tiger. <laughs> we don't quite know the story, but apparently, or allegedly at least, she was a, a barmaid or a servant at the pub called the White Lion Inn, which at the time housed an exhibition of wild animals or a menagerie. And one of those animals was the tiger. And apparently Hannah kept teasing the tiger. She was told by the keeper not to. And eventually it managed to break loose and, and that was the end of Hannah, unfortunately. But this is really, really interesting because why was there a tiger in Malmesbury in 1700 is the big question. So I actually had to look up menageries as opposed to zoos and the difference is that these are not sort of educational institutions. They were just collections of exotic animals that were essentially just a bit of fun for wealthy individuals, for royals, for um, aristocratic uh, people mm -hmm. and pretty much anyone with the money. To, and it was a sort of interest and to show off status and all of that. But the history of that, and especially using animals, wild exotic animals, to show off your wealth and connections goes back a really, really long way. One of my favourite early examples is uh, Charlemagne, the Frankish emperor. And he was sent an elephant by Caliph Harun al-Rashid, who was one of the Abbasids in 802, this elephant arrived. He'd actually asked for it because there was this, this lovely connection between the Frankish emperor and the caliph. The elephant was called Abu al-Abbas. It arrived in Italy the year before. We don't know where it came from, if it was an African or an Indian elephant. It then had to travel north across the Alps till it arrived with Charlemagne. And it lived quite happily until 810. And it was one of many animals that Charlemagne had to show off these connections. 
And it's actually something that had been happening for a really, really long time. If we go back even further, this sort of collections of, of something that's exotic just for fun and not for sort of functional uh, uses at all. And we see it all the way across the world. So in 1402, for example, in Venice, an uh, embassy from Ethiopia, from the Ethiopian king, turns up with four leopards in tow that caused a sort of real stir in, in Venice. Again, this was diplomatic connections. They were actually trying to get things. They were Christian kings. They were trying to get relics in return. So they, they brought some leopards along to impress, uh, which I think is quite a, a good idea. So we see these going back really thousands of years. People have been, I guess they're trying to show off by being able to tame these sort of exotic beasts and, and show off how they can get them. They're obviously very difficult to transport as well. So being able to transport them alive over really long distances is something that's key. But then if we go to England and the history of these menageries in England, I'm afraid we're back to your favourite again, and you will know all about this, Charles. Henry the First. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing it just, just for your sake, I promise. But um, he really was very well known for his menagerie and his collection of exotic animals at his manor called Woodstock. So he, apparently, according to William of Malmesbury, had a collection including lions, leopards, lynx, camels, porcupines and a rare owl that he had been given. I don't know, it was just for his personal interest, wasn't it? More well, anything. yes, that manor of Woodstock was his real pleasure ground. It's where he entertained his many mistresses. It's where Blenheim Palace is now, actually. But uh, yes, I think that was the beginning. I think his collection can be pretty much traced, his animals, all the way through to London Zoo. Yeah, so apparently what eventually ends up at London Zoo is actually part then initially of the Tower of London menagerie. And so in 1235, Henry III was presented with three leopards, again, although they may well have been lions, by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. So that inspired him to start this sort of zoo or this collection at the Tower. And another favourite part of that collection is the gift that Henry III was given in 1252 from the King of Norway of a white bear or a polar bear. And the polar bear apparently lived uh, in the Tower of London for a number of years. Allegedly, he had a, a sort of chain and a collar that would let him swim in the Thames and eat fish. And people could come and see this polar bear, <laughs> which I really like the idea of. And um, the collection grew quite significantly with lots of different uh, animals, including in the 17th century, there were pumas, there was a tiger, a jackal, lions and leopards. If you go up to the 1800s, there was a, a lioness from Africa called Fanny and a large baboon called Jumbo. Incidentally, not the Jumbo that was the elephant in London Zoo, who gave the name to Jumbo, Jumbo anything, was a very, very large elephant later bought by P.T. Barnum for his circus, actually. I was thinking, you know, these menageries haven't always worked out very well. So Pompey, the great Roman figure in first century BC, did enjoy a triumph. I think he had at least three of them through the streets of Rome. And he decided that one of them, to celebrate his victories in North Africa, he would have his chariot pulled by elephants. But they couldn't actually get through the gate of Rome. So that was a bit of a, a, a backfire. And then also, I was thinking how sad it is. You're absolutely right. These were for wealthy people to show off, etc. And when the parliamentarians took over after the English Civil Wars, 
I'm afraid this is rather upsetting, that they had the bears that were on show in London as a sort of uh, menagerie. They had them shot by essentially firing squads because they were seen as frivolous and and not uh, a godly pursuit. So, you know, it could go very wrong being in a menagerie. Do we know when people stopped wanting to collect animals as kind of signs of their wealth and prestige and started wanting to look at animals to understand zoology and the various forms of creation? Was that something, was was that a post-enlightenment thing? I think so, and I think something like London Zoo, for example, it's much more recent than that, where it sort of, it becomes educational so and becomes more for the public. So these early menageries were very much private collections. But, yeah, I think sort of Enlightenment, um, London Zoo is really 19th century that that properly, that the Tower of London menagerie closes and a lot of the animals are actually sent to the zoo, which has been established already. But most people weren't given access to them as well, apart from some of the travelling menageries, which is what we think might have killed Hannah in Malmesbury, one of these travelling exhibitions, which I guess suppose mm-hmm. also linked to circuses and, and that sort of performing animal. Yeah, it's when there's much more of an interest in the natural world for the sake of, of that and I think, where the zoos actually come in properly. But some of the really, really early ones are in different cultures. I mean, they're all over the world, actually, going back thousands of years. And some of them clearly put a lot of effort into keeping them alive, keeping them well, keeping them the animals healthy. But again, others also, like in the Aztec Emperor Montezuma II, for example, in what's now Mexico, he had one of the earliest animal collections, big ones, and that was destroyed by the Spanish in the conquest in 1520, again, completely. This poor woman being killed by the tiger reminds me of somebody, one of your fellow members of the cloth, Richard. Remember the vicar of Stuckey? Harold Davison. Yes, it's spelled Stiffkey. It's a part of Norfolk. He got rather over-involved in the saving of prostitutes and lost his stipend as a vicar. And he then decided to travel round England, reenacting Daniel in the lion's den with real lions. And one day it all went terribly wrong. And the vicar, this disgraced vicar, was chewed up by the lions in his show. Yeah. It was in Skegness, terrible place to end your life. <laughs> Apparently he trod on the lion's tail and the lion didn't like it. But do you know, um, when I was growing up, Kat, we had a, a little zoo in Wellingborough, a town nearby, in fact, where I went to school. It closed. I think rising standards of animal welfare made its continued operation impossible. But there was a time when the bloke who ran it had a pet lion. I think it was called Simba. And the lion used to go to the pictures and you go to the pictures, and there, lying down in the aisle next to the zookeeper's <laughs> um, chair, was his lion Simba. And he used to take it to the pub, and the lion <laughs> drank beer. Wow, that's quite impressive. Yeah, when I lived in Cape Town in South Africa for a while, there was a woman who used to have a, a cheetah on a dog collar. And it didn't really, it just didn't work, really. I mean, they're beautiful, and they're the least aggressive of the big cats, but it would just sort of jump suddenly at people. The trouble with big cats is that they are never, well, like normal domestic cats, they're never entirely tamed. You wouldn't really want one around the place. No, definitely. I did, for just for the sake of, of the two of you, by the way, I tried to look for any early references of menageries in Northamptonshire. Oh. Um, couldn't really find many. There was one record, don't know the date of it, at Horton in Northamptonshire, yes. where there's a record of a collection that included hogs with their navels on their backs. Apparently, oh and they yes. were apparently peccaries or musk hogs, which have these sort of scent glands that release a strong smell when they're threatened, as Sounds exotic as you got. A lot of inbreeding, which we don't really do in Northamptonshire. 
Really? Mind you, I'd pay fourpence to see a hog with a navel on its back, wouldn't you? Maybe you should reintroduce them. I don't know. I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice. Uh, Richard mentioned the Wellingborough Zoo, which doesn't seem to be perhaps the most well-looked-after zoo in the history of the... I was trying to be diplomatic, (laughs) disembodied voice. It opened in 1943, closed in 1970, but perhaps animal welfare practices and safety standards weren't particularly high. Uh, A man broke into the zoo once and was mauled by a leopard, apparently losing part of his arm. You mentioned the lion. It was indeed called Simba, and his keeper, Morris Sharp, not only would take him to the pub, but he also took him home. Uh, and he would take him to the pub on London Road, where he apparently once had 12 pints, like you said. There was Boo Boo the Chimp, who used to smoke a pipe, apparently. There was Charlie the Chimp and a swearing parrot, and an elephant named after Twiggy, and then Burma the Elephant, who joined Billy Smart's circus in 1949. There was also a sea lion that escaped into Swanspool Brook, and they dispatched the owner to the local fishmonger to buy, once again, eels, join us on, Mm. on the show, and to buy live eels, which were then used to coax the sea lion back into the zoo. Love that. Do you want to hear my favourite fact that I came across? Yes, please. So I like the fact that in in the 17th century, menageries in Europe were so prevalent that they inspired some really quite creative interpretations of history, one of them being a German Jesuit priest who was called Athanasius Kircher, and he was trying to work out the problem of why there were all these animals in America, when the encountered by the Europeans after the biblical flood because he couldn't reconcile the biblical stories with the discovery of these new territories because there shouldn't be any of those animals, (laughs) certainly. So he proposed that those animals had escaped from ships transporting animals around to European menageries and that's why they were there in the first place. So you have all these sort of connections and trying to, to put them together with Noah's Ark Lots of collectors at the time were also trying to essentially recreate the Ark by having their own menageries and getting all the different species, but none were very successful, I don't (laughs) think. So, have any of you ever made a really bad mistake or had a a sort of embarrassing moment when it comes to speaking foreign languages? I was in Morocco on holiday once, staying at a hotel where the attraction was uh, equestrian. They had all sorts of horses there. And in Morocco, having been a French colony, I was quite pleased to be able to report to the front desk. When I tore back the bedsheets, there was a lot of human hair lying on the sheets. And I rang the front desk and said that I had lots of cheveux, meaning hair, in my bedroom. And then about five minutes later, this man appeared in a boiler suit with some some leads because he thought I had said cheveux, which meant that I'd got lots of horses in my room. So that was a rather difficult one to explain. He was um, not really one to get rid of the housekeeping problem. (laughs) What about you, Richard? I was in um, Spain last year and I fancied a sherry and I was sitting in a bar in Valencia and I thought, well, I'd like a nice dry sherry. So I asked the waiter if I could have a manzanilla and I tried to pronounce it as Spanishly as I could and thought, ha ha, clever old me. And he brought me a cup of chamomile tea. It was actually <laughs> manzanilla means chamomile. And what I should have asked him was a glass of manzanilla sherry. And I was so embarrassed and felt so kind of wrong-footed that I sipped my way through this chamomile tea when actually I was just gagging for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> These are very um, specific and sort of targeted language lessons, I suppose, really. Have you any suggestions? <laughs> <laughs> Do I have any suggestions? Well, funny you should mention that, Charles. <laughs> because right now, Babel is offering our rabbit hole listeners a lifetime subscription with a 60% discount using the promo code RABBIT. 
So if you're looking to add another language to your portfolio, try Babbel, which is a language app built around having real life conversations. All you have to do is to go to babbel.com forward slash lifetime and use promo code rabbit for 60% on Babbel for a lifetime. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash lifetime, promo code rabbit. And the offer is only valid until June the 30th. Babbel, learn a new language in just 15 minutes a day. So back to it and Richard, this time it's you and the mysterious world of divination. I don't know if cat like me, you follow Charles on Twitter. And one of the things I most like where he posts are kind of views around Allthorpe, morning and evening. And there was one you did a while ago, Charles, and it was a red sky over the park. And I thought, oh, red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's morning. It's one of those examples of divination, actually. It's us looking to the heavens to see if we can descry in weather systems, whatever it might be, portents about what's coming our way. Now, some of that might be quite sensible. There may be, indeed, meteorological reasons why red sky in the morning might be bad news for a shepherd. But it tells you something about how persistent divination is. This idea that we can wrest knowledge of the future from those things in the present. We always want to do that, don't we? Whether it's the stock market or the interpretation of dreams, whatever it might be. Goes back a very, very long way indeed. And we know that people were seeking to divine the future or mysteries or people responsible for nefarious acts from the very beginning, in fact. Different forms of divination. In some cultures, the Etruscan culture, for example, seers were seen as central to the polity of that culture and that society and that civilization. And you would have the most senior seers would hold positions within the court, if you see what I mean. And the king's oracle would be considered to be the one most authoritative. Perhaps just a faint, faint, faint memory of that in the Archbishop of Canterbury. I thought this the other day, that the sort of chief high priest of the English cult, the Church of England, is the one to whom we turn if we need someone to pronounce on matters of moral import or the state of the nation. Maybe just a faint echo of the kind of king's oracle in that. The Greeks farmed out their oracles. You think of the Sibyl at Cumae, for example. They were these marginal figures to whom you went to seek advice, whatever it might be, or insight into the prospects of a military adventure or the crops or that kind of thing. In our own time, it's much more personal. So as if there is one form of divination that persists today most vigorously, it's the horoscope, isn't it? Printed in so many magazines and newspapers, has a significant body of work attached to it. Those who practice it claim to be proficient in the craft. And it's also cleverly sort of marketable because it's semi-personal in that you might be an Aries or you might be a Gemini, you might be a Virgo, and there could be something specific to your star sign printed, so you feel it's slightly addressed to you. But the astrologer does not have to go to the inconvenience of actually consulting you about it. So as a business model, I suppose that works quite well. There are some tremendous forms of divination. Charles, with your recent, well, in fact, long-standing reading in classical civilization. You will be aware of the Harris specs. Well, I'm not, actually. <laughs> you've, you've, disco- you've actually discovered the limited depths of my research. I haven't got there yet. Well, <laughs> next, next week's. Um, 
In ancient Rome, where augury was a very big thing, the haruspex was the diviner of the future from the inspection of livers. Hmm. So propitious animals, usually birds, would be captured and killed. And then the haruspex would cut them open and cut open their liver because it was felt that the liver would give indications of the portents for a particular enterprise or whatever it might be. And actually cutting open animals and looking at their innards is quite a big thing. There's a very charming, the Maya of Guatemala, as we call it today, if called upon to try to assess what ails someone, they used to pass eggs over the body of the afflicted and then crack open the eggs and discharge the contents into water and then inspect those contents because it was thought their kind of thready, albumin-y, yolky mysteries would reveal what was actually wrong with the person. There's another one very similar. Do you know about molybdomancy? No. no. Well, this is something actually, um, it's not really your, quite your area, but it's Finland, so it's not very far away, and in other cultures too. And on New Year's Eve in Finland, it's still followed today actually, the custom is, is that you melt lead or tin in a little crucible, and then when it's molten, you fling it into a bowl of water and then discern from the shapes that solidify in that water what the future might be. It's highly organised, in fact, and some people will throw in a horseshoe for general good luck. Some people will throw in something in the shape of a horse. These are like Monopoly pieces, I know, and that will tell you about uh, your chances of getting perhaps a car you want. Some people will, I don't know, throw in a carrot or something, and that will tell you about your crops. But did you know that EU regulations and also regulations in the neighbouring states have outlawed the use of materials so high in lead? So the Finnish state now requires you to use no lead tin or metal version to practice molybdomancy, which is nice to know. Does it do as well? I'm not too sure that there's a significant body of work testing the reliability <laughs> of these claims. And of course, that you'd think, wouldn't you, that it's quite easy to establish, particularly in a scientific age, whether these things are worth bothering with. But I think the truth is, is that a lot of it is about interpretation, and that the seer, the diviner, the oracle might, through all sorts of subtle means, be able to present quite a convincing case for something, not from the arbitrary, shape, arbitrary shapes made by molten lead in water, but simply through the acute observation of a person mm-hmm. and events. I think also it was open to rear vision, as it were. So often people saw things that were warnings after they had happened. One of the acts that Julius Caesar did during his pomp was to release some wild horses outside Rome. And then after he was assassinated, people said that the omen was there because the horses had stopped eating. Actually, far more important was that Caesar, just before his assassination, had disbanded his band of bodyguards. So that that you're trying to make something out of nothing because it's such a catastrophic event. There have to have been portents warning about it. Uh, And I think also the need or the desire to think that the future could somehow be revealed before it arrives is such a very powerful one. Mm. There's a lovely one. I'm very fond of it. Charles, you mentioned Canada. I know you spend a lot of time there. Indeed, your missus comes from there. Are you familiar with the the shaking tent of the Algonquin and indeed the Cree of First Nations? No. Well, if you want to find out what's afoot, and if you belong to those First Nations, the shaking tent, it's a sort of barrel-shaped tent, and that's set up, and then you invite a shaman to come, and then the shaman is bound, not always bound, but often bound, and inserted into the tent, and after a while, extraordinary physical phenomena begin to occur, and the tent shakes and shakes and shakes, and then groans and shouts and screams emerge from the tent as the shaman communicates with spirit guide, whoever it might be. 
and uh, then can, at the end of this experience, we can go on for 24 hours, you can converse with the shaman and find out those things you need to know, perhaps about a propitious match or something like that. Similar one, again, uh, it's the Maya, who are great fans of divination. They would throw maidens down a well, and then after some hours, someone would descend on a rope and haul out those maidens that survived the ordeal. And those that did, who I'm afraid were few, were thought to have been on a voyage to the underworld and would come back with valuable messages for the people who'd thrown them down the well. Not a great thing to <laughs> befall a maiden, but survivable. It does attract eccentrics even now. I, I went to a rather peculiar boarding school from the age of 8 to 13, and one of the more eccentric masters believed in this thing called the Virgilian Lot, which was uh, a practice from ancient times, I believe, where you took the works of Virgil. Virgil was regarded as sort of uh, semi-magical in his uh, abilities as a poet, and therefore as somehow there was a connection between high poetry and seeing into the future. And if you flicked open the Aeneid or something he had written on a random passage, you, you took that as meaning something specific to you. And I remember this strange ex-army officer from World War II teaching us how to flick through a book and find messages that would guide our way. So it is the, the area of the charlatan and, and the eccentric as well as, well, anyone else. There are similar forms of divination. Uh, you find this often in sub-Saharan Africa, where people will have a bag of stuff and then will cast the contents of that bag onto the ground. The part of the intestine of a murdered child, the mm. tooth of a man-eating, person-eating animal. And the way those figures landed would tell you something important that you needed to know about what lay ahead. I'm very interested in runes. Now, mm -hmm. we think of runic script, and we perhaps know what that looks like because we've read I don't know, cover of Lord of the Rings or something like that. But I, I believe that runes were given to Odin, is that right? And that runes have symbolic meaning as well as alphabetical meaning. It's a tricky one, that, because a lot of that has been applied to them later. And especially now, this is a huge feel of this idea that runes have magical powers. And we don't really necessarily think that they did. It's obviously something about the inscriptions and the words in the Viking, so I mean, runic scripts are pre-Viking age, the Germanic um, scripts that the runes that we think of associated with the Vikings especially come from, go back much earlier than that. And they're not really used for long texts as such. They're quite often just short words. And that, I think, sometimes makes us think that they themselves, the actual runes, had those magical powers. So you get them in really sort of strange places. You get them on the back of jewellery. There's just a simple word that doesn't really seem to mean very much. So some of it is linked to that, I think, because they are so short. So they're not, you know, really necessarily saying things. There are some really bizarre ones, like there's a piece of a skull from Denmark, from Ribe in Denmark, which has got an inscription to the human skull with a, a sort of brief inscription that we can't quite read. So it's, we don't really, really know because any of the texts that describe them come in much, much later. So I think people have associated them later on with those religious beliefs as well. well. Doesn't Himmler, Himmler, Hitler's henchman, but very much believe that the runes had a message for his, the Third Reich? I mean, you can sort of read into these things what you want to do, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the whole of, of that period is very associated with the Nazi movement. Mm. So they're, they're taking all of that which is a really, really interesting one. And if you're seeking to dignify your ruthless pursuit of power with the sort of force of destiny, then cloaking it in this kind of mythology 
poetry or semi-mystical cloud yes. uh, perhaps enables you to further your your wicked ends. And, and then this sort of thing happens quite a lot. And I'm sorry, we haven't had quite enough of the Vikings this episode, so I'm going to have to bring them in again. But you're talking about... Reel them in. Yeah, sorry. You're talking about portents and, and signs and sort of actually looking back to try and do that. One of the most famous ones for that sort of thing was the attack on Lindisfarne, which allegedly sort of kicks off the whole Viking age. And there's an account by Alcuin of York, who's a scholar, who writes that very famous account describing this brutal attack by the pagans on Lindisfarne. And he actually explains that there were all these signs and, uh, in the sky. There were red dragons, fiery dragons in the, in the sky were seen beforehand, all these natural phenomena which essentially predicted this attack taking place. So he uses all of those natural saying, you know, you should have known that this was coming. But what he's actually doing is he's he's not really just reporting objectively about this attack, but he's admonishing the Northumbrian king for not being a good Christian. So the pagans are a punishment for him and his people not being good Christians and they should have seen it coming because all the signs were there and they should have been able to tell the future, be good Christians, stop the whole thing from happening. So using all of this as a political tool, I guess. Yeah, and I guess after the fact, it's very easy to interpret lightning in a certain way, isn't it? Oh, you should have seen that one, one coming. Can I tell you my favourite fact? Yes, please do. <laughs> 1890, Baltimore, a boarding house. And there, a woman called Helen Peters invents a talking board, a sort of device which moves across a board on which the letters of the alphabet and yes and no are displayed. It's all familiar to us. It's a Ouija board. Now, something like it had been around for other talking board, but she was the person who actually organised it and patented it. And it's interesting, it's very sort of telling of our time, I think, that with the rise of science, divination, sorcery, or that kind of thing, prophecy, got rather sidelined because we found a formidably better way of predicting the future, which was by investigating what's in front of us really closely. So science rather kicked it into touch, and the idea of a king's oracle became absurd. But people remained fascinated, didn't they, about their own circumstances and about the entertainments that might come from entertaining this notion of a spirit world. And so the Ouija board was born. By the way, the boarding house where it was invented in Baltimore is now a 7-Eleven, but there's a plaque <laughs> outside that you can read for your edification. Unfortunately, Helen Peters disinvested from the... because there was a family row in which it was suggested that some relics from the Civil War that belonged to the family that had gone AWOL had been pinched by somebody. And when they consulted the Ouija board, the Ouija board pointed its finger at a particular member of the family, who was almost certainly not guilty of the crime, but half the family believed it. She didn't believe it. So she repudiated the Ouija board and said that it lied. Her repudiation, however, was not enough to deter the attention of Mr. William Fould, the entrepreneur, who bought the rights to the Ouija board from her and then marketed it. And in the 1920s, it became a huge hit. He marketed it as a sort of parlour game and made no claim for the veracity of the information it might vouchsafe. But guess what? In 1922, I think it was, does anybody voice or check? 1927. Thank you very much. Mr. Fould invested the proceeds from the sale of the girl in building a magnificent new factory for it in Baltimore. And he went up to the roof to inspect the installation of a flagpole from which the business's name would flutter. And in the course of this inspection, sceptical man, the part of the flagpole that he was holding onto failed, and he fell, grabbing onto a windowsill as he went down, but could he hold on? No, he couldn't, and he fell onto the sidewalk below. 
and incurred injuries which caused his death later. So woe betide those who doubt the power of the Ouija board. Don't try this at home, folks. Well, I think that's a very good place to end it, really, with a lesson for us all. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. So You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of this episode. And the thing, the moment we were waiting for, which is for our disembodied voice to pronounce our completely undemocratically selected winner. Who is it this week, please? It might be the most difficult one of all time, actually. They're all extremely good, but I'm going to go with Cats Menageries. Yay! Cats. Thank you. It was the polar bear, wasn't it? It was the polar bear. And and also helped by the incredibly bad zoo from Wellingborough. (laughs) (laughs) The smoking chimney. Excellent. Thank you. I feel very proud. Bravo, Cat. So... Before we go, we have to share our topics for next week. Richard, can you please go and study everything you can find out about royal pets? I'm going to be looking at something that actually came up over Twitter. We had a little conversation, uh, Richard, about national costumes. And one of our listeners, one of our followers suggested that one for us. And then finally, Charles, you wanted to look into crack regiments. And I had to ask you, what do you actually mean by that? I mean units of military prowess, particular prowess over the centuries. Um, I've I've got some in mind which I'd like to look at in some depth and share with the audience. Excellent. Well, can't wait to hear all about it. So that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe. Tell your friends, your neighbours and the postman and everyone about it and leave us a review as it will really help other people find the podcast. You can also suggest some rabbit holes that we can fall into in future episodes by sending us an email, rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com into your email client. And thank you to everyone who's done that so far. We've really enjoyed reading them, had some great ones from around the world. Each week, one of us will also be writing our new Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph. So look out for that where we discuss a few more of our favourite facts. So, in the words of Lewis Carroll's Alice, everything is queer today. Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) Bye. Bye.